travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyber terrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Welcome. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today with John Bamanek. This is our pilot episode here, talking about cybersecurity issues, breaking them down, and telling you what you need to know. A little bit about me uh, and why I've opted to do a radio show. I have been doing cybersecurity for 17 years now, pretty much my entire career. Uh, currently, I work as a manager of threat intelligence for Fidelis Cybersecurity. It's a cybersecurity company that uh, develops products and services for major companies. I also am a faculty member of computer science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I teach cybersecurity to undergraduate and graduate students. Married, four kids, fifth on the way. And one of the things that I've struggled with, many of our friends have young kids too. My oldest is nine. And what to tell them about being safe online, how to keep them from becoming uh, victims of online criminals and the like. For most of my 17 years, I focused on going after criminal elements, helping law enforcement here and abroad bring some of these people to justice. So most of my time is spent going what I call kind of the macroeconomic big pictures of, you know, what's the organization of these criminal entities, who's involved, following the money, tracking and surveilling their infrastructure. I don't often deal with a lot of victims, but I'm always cognizant of the fact that one of the things cybersecurity professionals do, I mean, we make products, selling them to big companies, but often, you know, the since there's so few of us, relatively speaking, consumers don't have many people to rely on, right? Friends and family know what I do for a living. They ask me for advice, but not everybody has that. And nobody's there to say, hey, you shouldn't click on that because you'll get your computer infected. We're going to talk a little bit about the DNC hacks here in the next segment. But one of the Interesting unreported aspects, uh, underreported aspects anyway, of that particular hack. The entire Hillary for America campaign was breached and all those emails of John Podesta published by WikiLeaks because of one mistake made. Likely Russian-affiliated hackers sent basically a fake Gmail password reset to John Podesta. Somebody asked some IT guy, hey, is this legit? There's some dispute of what he intended to say, but basically came back, yeah, this is legitimate. Reset your password. That password was reset. Alleged Russian hackers got the password, stole all the information based off of one simple fake email. When most people think of hacking and cybersecurity, they think of somebody running a series of attacks, just remotely reaching out and touching a computer and tricking it to give you information. And certainly, there is a little bit of that going on. But by and large, most of the attacks are something similar to what John Podesta got, this fake email password reset message, emails with FedEx or whatever with uh, attachments that if you click on them, infect your computer. They're all relatively simple things that rely on you not knowing what you're seeing and being tricked by it, not knowing what to look for to authenticate it. So one of the things that I like doing and prefer to do is helping consumers and getting information out there so that they can protect themselves. 
and you'll hear me say it time and time again, when it comes to your personal cybersecurity, that of your family, of your children, uh, of your parents even, you're more or less on your own. There are products you can buy, we'll talk about them, but by and large, you've got to protect yourself because there's not a big entity out there to do it. Certainly, like I said, there's criminal prosecutions out there that happen. But to give you an example uh, of how hard and difficult this is, there was one thing I could talk about relatively public. Two to three years ago, I was involved in a, in a law enforcement operation called Operation Tovar, which targeted the individuals behind a banking malware that stole credit cards, banking account information, and ransomware. Based on cooperation of, I think it was like 140 private sector people that I put together, 11 different countries. It took us eight months working on that problem in a relatively dedicated fashion to finally get an indictment. Now, that should be distinct from an arrest, just that this person is indicted and there's a warrant out for them of the person behind it by the name of Eugene Bogachev, who is a Russian national. We're not going to be able to go to Russia and arrest him. But there is a $3 million bounty. That stopped, in essence, really only two specific type of online criminal campaigns. We certainly call it a big win, and it is. But the fact of the matter is there's still criminals out there victimizing people because there's nobody out there who's saying, you know what, this is what you really need to know as a consumer to protect yourself, or this is what you really need to know as maybe just an employee of a company sitting in your cubicle to keep your company from being a victim uh, and getting yourself into professional trouble. And certainly, one of the things that surprises me, and has surprised me, is the high level that people are talking about cybersecurity right now. In the 90s, in the early turn of century when I was involved in this, this is a niche thing. Nobody was really interested. I mean, we were all kind of talking to ourselves, a small community of people of like-minded interests. But we'd say, hey, company, you need to worry about X. And they'd be like, no, no, we don't. Or, hey, United States government, you need to worry about Y. No, no, we don't. Now we see it as we saw it in the election, right? Presidential candidates talking about cybersecurity and what we're going to do. Uh, people developing cybersecurity policies, who hacked the DNC and whether they hacked the election. So there's certainly a lot of high-level conversation about that. But as a result, there's also a fair bit of mud in the water, right? And the election hacking is a great example. And I say election hacking with tongue firmly in cheek because, sure, the DNC was breached and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and Hillary for America and those emails leaked on the Internet. But that doesn't necessarily follow that Russia directed the outcome of the election. There are many variables in every election that affect the outcome. This is perhaps a very small one, but people are talking in great detail that, oh, Vladimir Putin directed this operation. Well, as somebody who investigated this, that's taking the evidence a little bit too far. Certainly, the attacks emanated from Russia on the DNC. The emails were stolen. We've linked it to a group that has done work with Russian intelligence in the past, but we have defense contractors and government contractors also in this country, and that doesn't mean that everything they do is at the direction of the White House or the Pentagon either. There's a lot of evidence not in hand about these issues uh, that people are talking about in great detail even now. So the hope is to tell you what you need to know, cut through some of the noise, and give you the information you need to protect yourself.
If you're just tuning in, this is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. So to talk a little bit about uh, you know what we're going to go over today, we're going to be talking about some of the latest corporate breaches, Yahoo, Dropbox, LinkedIn, many others that have been breached here in uh, 2016. We're entering an era where we're openly talking about retaliation, right? Russia hacked the DNC, so we're going to do something to retaliate against them. President-elect Trump used similar terminology in the debates, saying if people attack us, we need to understand that we can hit back and harder. So I think we're going to see a lot of that in the coming year, uh, months, if not year, of retaliation and nations overtly hacking each other and doing damage. While it sounds like an episode of 24 or Homeland or whatever sitcom you like to watch, often when dealing with these kind of attacks, there's a lot of impact to private citizens. Last year, I believe there was, it turned out to be incorrect, but an attack on Springfield, Illinois' water and power system, which was attributed to Russia. It very easily that attacks on private infrastructure could have impacts to you or I, and we'd be bystanders in that kind of conflict. But certainly as, as time goes on, there'll be some interesting developments there and look forward to cutting through the noise and telling you what you need to know. So coming up next, we are going to have uh, an interview with Justin Harvey, Director of Global Incident Response for Accenture, talking about Russia and their election cycle hacking. You are listening to Cybersecurity Today with John Bamanek. Stay tuned for more. John Bambanek will be right back. Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. I have a special guest with us here today and Justin Harvey, Director of Global Incident Response at Accenture. I had the pleasure of working with Justin in a previous job at Fidelis where he was Chief Security Officer, and he is going to talk to us about uh, Russia and all the election hacking claims. How are you doing today, Justin? Hey, I'm doing great, John. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Why don't we start off? What do we know? What don't we know? What's what's true and false about what's being said about uh, Russian influence over our election? Well, what we do know for sure is that some entity, some threat group, some group of people have taken quite an interest in the political organizations that uh, that are participating in our democracy in the United States. And what we also know, uh, without a doubt, is that those threat groups or those actors, those adversaries, have targeted mostly that we've seen in the public, the Democratic uh, Party in the United States. And, and that's on one side. On the other side, I guess we should say the private sector. That's what the private sector sees, and I think that we could prove. Then you've got the U.S. government, uh, the intelligence community, saying, by the way, those cyber attacks are directly attributed to uh, a nation-state power, and in this case, that being Russia. So do you think they're, uh, the intelligence community has got that right? Are they coloring the facts, anything? Uh, you know, should we believe them? I need a little bit more. I, I think their hearts in their, are, are in the right place. I trust 
the analysis, but I all, when when something is elevated to to such a degree and the national security is at stake, we have to go on a little bit more than just a few statements. Uh, meaning, with all respect, I, I have a great amount of confidence and belief in our intelligence community, but you also have to weigh that with uh, we have made uh, some, some mistakes in the past around intelligence. Every intelligence agency does, whether you're in the private sector or the public sector, but I think we need to see a lot more coming out of the government to kind of support those, uh, those statements. Well, I think interestingly enough, I believe the Russian president said more or less the same as uh, show me evidence that I'm behind it or not. Uh, and I think recently we've seen claims that uh, Vladimir Putin was personally involved with whatever operation that there has been. One of the claims, I, you know, as, uh, more of the political side of things is that this had great influence over our election outcome. I mean, everybody knows the DNC was breached, uh, that emails were leaked to WikiLeaks of John Podesta and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and the like. You know, do you think they had great impact on the end result of the election? That's the $10,000 question, I think, John. It's, it's very difficult to quantify damage uh, in, in reputation and in, in opinion. Because when you look at a, a vote, when you look at a ballot that is cast, that is a moment in time where that person makes a decision and it's their opinion. A vote is, is merely that, an opinion that this person would be a, a better leader and, and can guide the country better than, than another person. That is, that is an opinion. And it's very difficult to, after the fact, to go back and say, well, if things had been different, and, and I also think that uh, any sort of polls that are taking the pulse of, of the American people at this point are suspect. And, and let me explain that. I, I'm starting to become more and more jaded in, uh, around polling <laughs> based upon how wrong it was uh, this last year. So it's very, very difficult to say what the election would have been like without, uh, without those breaches and without the subsequent uh, WikiLeak releases. No, no, that's, that's certainly fair enough. The poll certainly got things consistently wrong. I think when I've looked at that myself, I think the one data point where you saw a real impact of the polls was Comey's letter two weeks before the election, right? There was a big dip there. And I just presume the polls were systemically wrong. And I was really only paying attention to patterns. But when things went down, it was on that versus the here's 20,000, however many emails here, American public go fish. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. We're on with Justin Harvey, uh, Director of Global Incident Response for Accenture. What now? Uh, you know, Russia hacked the DNC. They've published emails. They certainly had uh, a lot of uh, impact with the DNC and certainly a lot of media articles of the past few months. What really can we do about it? I mean, it's not like we can get anybody arrested over this. What are uh, our response options here? Uh, that is that is going to be the question of tomorrow, or I think that's really the question as of, uh, of January 20th when President-elect Trump uh, becomes the president of the United States. Uh, I think that there needs to be – I'm hoping that this is an awakening moment. It's 
those of us who have been working in, in the industry for quite some time, like yourself, John, have have realized the severity of these sort of uh, suspected nation-state actions against uh, U.S. organizations and the government. And there hasn't been a lot of reaction or positive actions that have been taken by the government. I think that President Obama's Cybersecurity National Action Plan, which expands funding for awareness and funding for incident response and and technology uplift in the government is a good start. I think that there needs to be a lot more spending when President Trump comes into office uh, around uh, raising the cyber defense posture of of the U.S. government. So that that really focuses more on getting better training for the people, more technology in place, and making it really, I guess you could say, military-grade, so that, that it's much more difficult for foreign powers to access our government. In the private sector, I'm hoping that these incursions from whoever is are conducting these operations serves as a warning to board members and the C-suites in, in companies around, around the country. Uh, we are still seeing uh, organizations that do not take cybersecurity seriously. And mm-hmm. I think that overall there needs to be much more spending and awareness uh, for across people, across technology, across processes, in order to step up our efforts to defend ourselves against uh, these sort of attacks. No, no, I definitely agree. And I guess for full disclosure, you and I both worked a little bit on that DNC breach, so obviously we have some inside info and insight into that. But I uh, wanted to segue to one last question, right? You you mentioned the uh, recommendations from Obama's uh, Cybersecurity Commission, right? Um, and a little bit of a lighthearted question. If uh, President-elect Trump asked you to be cybersecurity ambassador, would you accept? Absolutely. I think that being a, a part of cybersecurity is, or to put it another way, cybersecurity is not a partisan issue. Uh, I think uh, maybe interpretation of intelligence and 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 what motives are maybe that's being uh, uh, that's kind of being turned into a partisan argument. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, cybersecurity needs to improve across the board. Uh, and if called upon, I would uh, I would definitely serve in that capacity. Well, would you travel more or less as an ambassador than you do now? That's the question. <laughs> Probably less. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for coming on and being uh, on cybersecurity today. Uh, Justin Harvey, Director of Global Incident Response for Accenture. Uh, thanks for being here today, Justin. Thanks, John. We're going to be segueing after the break, really talking about how cybersecurity in, uh, impacts individuals, people uh, just going about their daily lives, uh, not governments and intelligence agencies, but how this really affects uh, you, the consumer, uh, who just want to get you know, to your online banking accounts, doing online shopping, getting presents for your kids for the holidays, and get an understanding of how these issues affect you. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek, and we'll catch you right after the break. Stay tuned for more from Bambanek on Cybersecurity. It's 
Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. So one of the big corporate breaches that we're going to be talking about is Yahoo. We saw that the announcement of earlier uh, mid-December that a billion accounts were compromised, right? And that's a pretty big eye-popping number as far as number of accounts. That is probably the biggest number that has ever been breached as far as the history of cybersecurity. Uh, the number is probably inflated somewhat because there's a lot of spam accounts. People have multiple email addresses. But certainly that's a big eye-popping number. And as a security analyst and an, and an intelligence analyst, one of the data points of that breach is you know the release that came out from Yahoo Corporate was this breach happened in 2013 and we really don't know why it happened. Right? One, I suppose better late than never, but they really have no idea exactly the cause. Earlier this year, they announced 500 million accounts were breached, and earlier before that, 300 million accounts were breached, and we believe those are three separate events where people walked off with essentially compromising every user who ever used Yahoo. So there's certainly a lot of factors that go into that, and it applies greatly to social media. A lot of these services that you don't pay for, Facebook, Twitter, go on and so forth. They don't really make any money. They make money in advertising, but they don't make money for an individual user account. So they tend to create some shortcuts and not really treat some of the problems seriously. There were some indications of problems uh, several years ago, some turnover in uh, the senior security leadership of that company, but they really had no incentive to really protect the data in a big way because most of these uh, social media companies, I mean, they're in the business of data mining their users and advertising, uh, not really in the business of security. That's just an added cost. And the result was, like I said, a billion accounts lost, uh, the impact of which, uh, you know, certainly the annoyance of all of these people having to change their passwords even those who have abandoned the account. But even abandoned accounts have useful information, right? Odds are if you were banking with Citibank five years ago, you're probably still banking with Citibank today. I might be able to get glean, uh, glean you know, who you associate with to uh, use impersonated emails. There may be a lot of information sitting in abandoned email spools that is of value and can be useful to criminals. So certainly there is some impact there. Uh, luckily, uh, Yahoo did, everybody had to reset their passwords uh, earlier this year. So this new breach uh, largely is already mitigated because everybody reset their passwords. It's another big black mark on them uh, who is trying to go through an acquisition right now. And a reminder that a lot of our information we willingly give to other companies under the assumption that they protect us. And I think this year showed us that there's a lot of cases where companies we trust to keep our data safe doesn't keep our data safe. There's various healthcare companies. Quest Diagnostics was the latest one to, to be breached that I recall that does a lot of lab testing. So a lot of our personal information is out there actively being stolen because companies, uh, many companies, not all, uh, but many are not taking adequate steps to protect it. And it's certainly not confined. I mean, corporate attacks are not confined to simply losing personal data. Earlier this month, San Francisco Muni, the public transit department for San Francisco, was hit by ransomware, right? Ransomware is basically a form of computer virus that either encrypts your files and say, pay us money or you never get your files, or takes over your computers and servers and say, you can't have these back or use these servers for whatever you're using them for unless you pay money. 
the net result is the infrastructure in San Francisco that powered their public transit was taken offline for about two days and for lost revenue of about half billion, half million to $600,000 a day in lost fares. So, and that ultimately is coming out of the taxpayers who fund public transit. So certainly it has real impact even to taxpayers. That's not necessarily the threats everyday individuals face. If you get this on your computer via a variety of means, right, it encrypts your files, says, no, you can't have the pictures of your kids or your wedding or whatever unless you send these guys $300, $400, $500 to get it back. You can't have your work files unless you pay some money. Now, Now you're out real cash. And these things happen because, you know, of a couple of things, right? You get an email, it's got some attachments as, uh, you know, the stuff I'm seeing today was, hey, FedEx delivery notifications, you click on this a bunch of times, it infects your computer with ransomware. So paying attention to these fake emails, making sure that things are on the up and up, right? If FedEx has problems delivering a package to you, they're going to leave a tag on your door, they're not going to send you an email. If there's links in email, uh, odds are you probably just want to go to the website directly, but you can just put the mouse over a link, whatever it says, look at the bottom of your web browser, it'll tell you a URL, it says amazon.com, okay, you're probably fine. If it says Jimmy's going to steal your credit cards.ru, you're probably not. But really having that awareness and the attention to detail uh, of things that criminals do that try to deceive you to trick on things, uh, trick you to clicking on things, you know, that'll get you to compromise uh, your identity, your finances, uh, any any number of things, right? One of the best email scams I got, uh, fake emails that tried to get you to click on something I got uh, maybe two years ago now, get an email, purports to be Verizon, it's who I got my cell phone business through, says, hey, by the way, your bill's ready, your bill's 1200 some odd dollars, you know, please click here to pay it. And, you know, me not liking my cell phone company particularly great, it's like, gosh darn it, there's Verizon sticking it to me again. Uh, you know, almost clicked on it and says, hey, wait a second, I don't think that that's legitimate. You know, go log into Verizon Wireless, just open a new tab on the web browser. No, the bill is 150 whatever, right? Still too much, but not 1200 And realize, hey, you know what? These, this is clever. That's a real clever lure, right? You're dealing with organized crime here, really, is what it comes down to. These are people that spend their time thinking about it. Um, many of you have seen, you know, old mob movies and the like of, you know, these criminal networks shaking people down. It's the same kind of thing operating in uh, the digital realm, uh, usually people operating overseas that, you know, the FBI can't exactly walk into Russia and arrest anybody. We're going to talk more in depth here with uh, Eugene Kogan here after the break on uh, Yahoo, some of the big corporate breaches that we've seen in 2016. So stay tuned for that. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Bambanek on Cybersecurity. Welcome back. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bamanek. Joining me right now is Eugene Kogan, current director of security for AuthZero, which is a cloud-based identity solutions provider and a board member for the Cloud Security Alliance's Seattle chapter. Before AuthZero, Eugene spent four years at Amazon, 
engineering solutions uh, for large-scale monitoring and detection problems, and spent a decade working on various projects for the National Security Agency, which I doubt he can talk about, but you probably can read on WikiLeaks. Eugene, thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm good. How are you? I am living the dream. So we're talking about, you know, various large-scale corporate breaches, right? Earlier this month, actually a few months ago, and again this week, uh, seeing a breach of Yahoo and a lot of data getting leaked, reportedly about a billion accounts sold for, I want to say, $300,000 U.S. dollars on the dark web. And certainly seems, uh, you know, I don't know if it's your perception, but mine, it's almost every week or every other week there's another big organization that loses a ton of data. So wanted to talk a little bit about what you what you think of the trends are and what that matters or uh, you know what's important for uh, consumers to know about these uh, breaches. So uh, why don't we start up with Yahoo and uh, you know tell us uh, what's up with uh, what's up with that breach? You know, a billion some odd accounts. Do you think they uh, did you think they even had that many users still left? I think at this point, all of their users have been breached, mm-hmm. and as far as I can tell, that number is only going to go down because. After breach after breach coming from Yahoo, I think users are starting to lose confidence and they're getting to the point where they don't want to reset their password one more time for a website that they barely use. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing about Yahoo is that they're in the middle of that acquisition by Verizon. And there's a lot of speculation of, will this impact the acquisition? Will Verizon pull out? Will they ask for a discount? Um, that would be an interesting outcome because one issue I have with data breaches in general is that I feel the cost to the company is not really sufficient for them to put in the resources to prevent breaches in the first place. So I've seen studies that mm-hmm. say a breach will cost a company maybe $4 million. For a company like Yahoo or Google, that's really not that much money. So if Verizon, on the other hand, decides that you know they want to pay 20% less than they were going to because now Yahoo has an even worse reputation and fewer users, then that would be quite significant from a financial perspective. No, I would certainly think so. I, I, I'm trying to remember. I think I got in a Yahoo account maybe 99, 2000. I don't remember when I abandoned it. Uh, so I hadn't used it in years prior to the uh, part of the breach. I think yeah, there's a couple of legacy email lists. So, uh, you know, that just for fun's sake, my Yahoo email address was Sun Unix Guru, which dates, you know, how old it was considering that Sun Unix is no longer around either. So yeah. why do you think, you know, there's a difference, right? Gmail, uh, you know, another web secure or web email provider, you know, they seem to not have that level of problems. Uh, you know, there's not been a large breach of Facebook. I mean, they've had security issues, but nothing that catastrophic. Uh, do you think it's something, you know, for Yahoo? Are there things consumers can do to pick more secure providers? Or are they kind of on their own just waiting for news to break? I think they should definitely pick more secure providers. Um, Google, in general, they went through a pretty major security issue years and years ago mm-hmm. that really highlighted the importance of security to them as a company. And then they started investing a ton of money, a lot of people they hired. And so now they have, I would say, probably the best security in terms of consumer accounts for email and things like that. Yahoo, people might have abandoned their accounts years ago, but they just need to be aware of what's still left in there. So they might have email from 10 years ago, but it could still be personal. And you might not want that getting out on the dark web or elsewhere, especially if you have kind of a higher profile account. And a lot of us who had accounts back then, 
had really short or easily guessed usernames. So it's it's pretty simple for someone to figure out who that Yahoo is, user is and perhaps check their email from years ago, maybe finding something interesting. So yeah, you, consumers definitely have a choice and they need to kind of to really get past the uh, friction point of switching providers. That can be a little tricky, especially for email. I know mm-hmm. I personally would have a lot of work to do to switch providers, but if I was still on Yahoo, I think I would finally put in that effort. Yeah, no, I, th- I, th- I think that's definitely true. I know what I've told people is that we talk a lot about identity theft generally, right? And people are afraid of credit cards and bank accounts. And largely, I mean, it's it's a big deal, but I've had this year, I don't know, my credit card stolen six times for breaches I had nothing to do with. I just get a new card. But if somebody steals your primary email address, right? They know what accounts you have because there's always the, you know, welcome to Facebook or welcome to Chase Bank or whatever. You know, they have basically the keys to your your digital identity because everything's the nexus of all of that is your primary email account. And if somebody can get in there, they can reset almost anything else. Sometimes they may have to guess security questions, which ironically enough goes back to a story about Yahoo and Former Governor Sarah Palin, when she was running for vice president in 08, had a personal email in Yahoo, and the answers to her security questions were all stuff you can glean from Wikipedia. You know, where'd you meet your husband? Who's your youngest kid? Uh, You know, things that uh, somebody in Tennessee was able to guess just reading a Wikipedia article and getting into her account. So interesting aside there, you're listening in for those who just tuned in to Cybersecurity Today with John Bamanek. I am on the phone with Eugene Kogan, Director of Security for Auth0. So going forward into 2017, do you think the pace of these big corporate breaches is increasing? And what can consumers do to protect themselves? Yeah, like you were saying earlier, I think the pace is increasing. Um, some of that is unclear if it's actually more companies getting breached or more companies reporting breaches due to regulation changes. It's hard to know these things, but from what I can tell, things are getting worse before they're going to get better. And unfortunately, that means we as users need to do a little bit more work to protect ourselves. Um, I think the biggest thing we can do is turn on two-factor authentication for all the accounts that we have that support it. So things like Gmail for sure. I don't know if Yahoo does support it, but I think they do through text messaging at this point. So if you have an account that you care about, like your bank, and it supports multi-factor or two-factor authentication, it's critical to turn that on. So what that does is basically stop someone from logging into your account, even if they have your username and your password. Um, One thing to consider is that a lot of times when companies implement something like multi-factor, they still put in kind of a fallback mechanism mm-hmm, so that mm-hmm. users can still get to their account. Worst case scenario, right? You lose your phone or your token and you just can't get in. They don't want to lose a customer and piss off a user. So there's usually a backdoor that they have. Um, they need to be careful that they don't let someone reset this too easily, right? We've all seen those social engineering attacks against companies like Amazon and bank accounts and Verizon where basically an attacker will call up and just, convince the person on the customer service line that they are you, and then everything gets reset either to their phone number Mm -hmm. or to their email address, and then basically they bypass your multi-factor authentication. Um, But it's still worth doing from a user perspective, definitely. No, I I personally, I I have it set up on a lot of things, even though uh, for 
uh, some things are sensitive, but a couple things that are not, just to get an idea if somebody's trying to log in because you get a text message to your phone. It's like, oh, I didn't try to log into Facebook just now, and get an idea of people poking at your stuff. So it's uh, it's also a fairly good uh, monitoring solution. At least I found. You know, the only downside is um, I don't know how much you travel overseas, but it kind of compels you to bring your personal cell phone overseas. Uh, to places just so you can get text messages to log into things that uh, you might want to access while abroad. But And U.S. cell phone companies aren't exactly nice when it comes to international roaming charges. But everything has its costs uh, and its benefits. So that's certainly certainly good advice. Any other advice you have for, uh, you know, consumers? What should they do about security questions? Uh, you know, that also got breached with Yahoo. Uh, any, any advice uh, of that sort? Yeah, my advice there would be to Use something like a password manager. Mm-hmm. Um, there's products out there, like 1Password is a good, good example if you're using a Mac or an iPhone. And then just use your password manager to create random strings, basically other passwords, and use those as answers to security questions because there's been a ton of research that shows security questions are not exactly effective. Yeah. So like you said earlier, it's too easy to Google for these answers. Everything is on Facebook or Twitter nowadays. So just pick a random string. You end up essentially having four different passwords for each account. But if you have a password manager, it's not a big deal. And then something else you can do once you have a password manager is to make sure you have a unique password per website so that if the next breach comes out tomorrow, let's say they have your password in clear text, well, that should only impact that one site if you have a unique password for everything else. So you're not reusing passwords, Mm -hmm. and then attackers can't do the same. No, no, absolutely right. Password reuse is a big thing. So you know, when these web, big websites get breached, right, they get an email address, they get a password. If that password's what you use for everything, then you know, even though it's a blog site or whatever that gets breached, then all of your stuff can go along with it. So you know, that's excellent advice. So I want to thank you. Uh, it's been Eugene Kogan from Osir on the phone with us, Director of Security. Uh, go ahead, check him out online. Uh, thank you, Eugene, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. All right, so we covered a lot of ground today in this episode here of Cybersecurity Today. Covered a little bit about corporate breaches, what do you need to know uh, with the Yahoo breach, Dropbox, LinkedIn, some of these things you've seen uh, where you've got uh, your personal data stored, what you can do uh, if you uh, believe you're a victim of a breach and how you can protect yourself. We've talked about some of the nation-state stuff going on, right, the election controversy, whether the Russians were involved manipulating our elections and how that plays out, how our governments are planning to deal with cybersecurity here in the coming months and years as we await the inauguration of a new president. And a little bit about your personal security. I said you've heard me say it once or twice or maybe even three times this hour already. When it comes to personal cybersecurity, the only one that's going to be able to protect yourself is you. So knowing what criminals are after, knowing what they want and how to protect yourself, right? I've spent most of my career going after some of these big groups, but often the victims get left behind or not thought of. And when you're dealing with criminals who may victimize two, three, five million people across dozens of countries, it's it's very difficult to offer something to the victims. But at the end of the day, it comes back to individual people and having the tools and knowledge to help protect themselves. So I hope to give you that knowledge, uh, cut through some of the noise and chatter, uh, and give you stuff that you can take home with you to keep your family safe. So thank you for tuning in to Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek, and have a great day. Bambanek on Cybersecurity. Cybersecurity.